I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 2, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 22, verses 9 through 14. Genesis chapter 22, verses 9 through 14, and I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. The Bible reads, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid wood and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Isaac his son, I'm sorry, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided." There was a college professor who thought that one of the football players at the school was cheating on his tests. And so he called the player in and told him, I think you've been copying your neighbor's answers on the tests. And the football player said, why do you think that? Well, the professor said, I've compared your test answers to your neighbor's test answers, and they're identical. And the football player said, well, that could just be a coincidence. And the professor said, I thought the same thing, but on this particular question, your neighbor put, I don't know, and your response was, me either. <laughs> you know, tests, tests have value. Medically speaking, tests measure the status of our health in a particular uh, area of our body. Academically speaking, tests measure the status of our knowledge on a particular subject. So tests are a means of measuring growth or decline. And that's important for us to understand because the first six verses of Genesis chapter 22 are these. The first six words of Genesis chapter 22 are these. After these things, God tested Abraham. Without any warning, without any heads up, without any explanation, God decided to give Abraham a test. Now, Abraham doesn't know he's being tested, and Abraham is not a reader looking at this story with the final chapter written, so he doesn't know how this thing's going to play out. Abraham is living in the moment, without the understanding that God has a purpose and a plan for what's about to unfold. Now look at the specifics of the test that Abraham is given. They are not specifics that you and I are ever going to be assigned by God for a test, but they are indeed challenging. It's in verse 2. God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, we need to understand why God is giving this particular test to Abraham. 
Because it's not a test you or I are ever going to take. The reason God gave this specific test to Abraham was because he wanted to know whether Abraham trusted in the blessing or the blesser. God is the blesser. He's the one who has brought these blessings into Abraham's life. Isaac is that ultimate blessing. And thus far in Abraham's life, he has demonstrated a trust in the blessing rather than the blesser. So, for instance, when he followed God's directions and arrived in the promised land, the land that God was going to give him as an inheritance, all of a sudden a famine arose. And what's the first thing Abraham does when a famine comes? He leaves the land that God gave him. He trusted in the blessing. His confidence was in the blessing rather than the blesser. And when God told him, your own child shall be your heir, rather than this servant Eliezer, your own offspring will be your heir. What did Abraham do? He found a surrogate, spouse, a, a surrogate mother to bring that child into existence because it hadn't been working with Sarai. And so he trusted in the blessing rather than the blesser. And now that the covenant promise, the ultimate promise has come to fruition in the form of Isaac, God's going to give Abraham one final test. A test to determine if he's going to trust in the blessing, which is Isaac, or the blesser, which is God. A couple of weeks ago, we kicked off this series on the names of God that I'm calling Name Dropping. And I pointed out that one of the ways God has made himself known to his people is through his names. And now up to this point in the biblical narrative, we haven't looked at this, but there have been a few times when names of God have surfaced. But they're all variations of the generic term for God, which is Elohim. And so you can go to Genesis chapter 14 and verse 19, and there you'll see Abraham interact with the, the, the high priest of Salem, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham by El Elyon, God most high. And then in Genesis chapter 16 and verse 13, we read about Hagar after she does become pregnant by way of Abraham. She, is, she flees that family because uh, Sarai is mistreating her so horribly. And God finds her in the wilderness. And Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, Elroi, you are a God of seeing. And in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, when the Lord appeared to Moses, not Moses, to Abraham, uh, for who knows how many times at this point. And this time God got specific. And God's going to tell Abraham, not only shall it be your child that is the, the covenant child, but it will be Sarah's child as well, and you're going to name him Isaac. But in that interaction, before, actually before that interaction started, God appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. 
And all those names that have appeared thus far in the text of the Bible have all been derivatives of Elohim, the generic title for God. But after Abraham passes this test, after he passes this test by not withholding his son from Yahweh, we are introduced to the first variation of that name, the first variation of Yahweh, the personal name of God. Look at the end of the story in Genesis chapter 22 at verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. When the test was over, Abraham referred to God as Yare Yire, which means Yahweh provides. That means that this test brought Abraham to a new level of understanding about Yahweh. And let's consider for a moment what that new name tells us about the one true God. First, the name Yahweh Yireh tells us that God foresees our needs. Last week, we focused on the meaning of Yahweh, on God's personal name. We talked about how it communicates intimacy, autonomy, and fidelity. And if you missed that lesson, I encourage you to go back and and listen to it because we'll be encountering that name over and over again throughout this summer as it is the name on which these, these new names are built. Since we already addressed the Yahweh part of this name, let's turn our attention to the second part, to the Yire part. The root word for the name Yire literally means to see. So how do we get this interpretation of this name as Yahweh provides? Well, a little bit ago I mentioned a name that Hagar gave to God when he found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. That name was Elroi, and it meant the God who sees. With that name, Hagar was acknowledging God's ability to see one's present needs. She was in the wilderness, alone and pregnant, expelled from her master's family, and God saw her in that time of need. He was the God who sees. If Abraham just wanted to acknowledge the same thing, he could have used that name. Instead, he chose a different name. A name that communicated not just God's ability to see a present need, but also God's ability to foresee a need before it existed. See, the English term provide comes from the combination of two Latin words. Pro, which means before, and videre, which means to see. So the origin of the word provide literally means to see before. And so yitere is the name chosen by Abraham because it doesn't just address God's vision. It also addresses God's provision. God's ability to see the need before the need existed. That's Yahweh Yitere, the God who sees a need before it existed. And Jesus tells us that that's the same God we serve today. If you look over in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, it's in these verses that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. 
In particular, he instructed them regarding the proper mindset and practice of praying. He told them not to pray like the heathens who use empty phrases or vain repetitions, who want to be heard for their many words. Why did he tell them not to pray like that? Why did he tell them don't use wordy prayers, don't be repetitive, don't do that sort of practice with your prayer? The reason he told them that is because your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus made it clear that our Father is still Yahweh, Yireh. He sees our struggles. He detects our dilemmas. He perceives our problems. He observes our obstacles. He knows our needs before they exist. He is Yahweh, Yireh. He was that with Abraham, and he is that still today. God knows what you're dealing with, even though I don't. God knows what you're struggling with, even though everyone in this audience is oblivious to it. God knows the need you have right now. But that's not the only thing Yahweh Yildireh tells us about God. That name also tells us that God resolves our needs. See, Abraham knew that God knew killing Isaac would create a conundrum. If Isaac died, then God's word would actually be compromised. Back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 19, God had specifically told Abraham, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And God attached the covenant to that child. And so if Isaac dies, so does the covenant. Abraham knows that God knows that killing Isaac would create a problem. But Abraham also knew that thus far in his life, Yahweh had resolved every conundrum he faced. When Abraham faced the conundrum of not knowing where he was going, the Lord said, I will show you in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, and proceeded to appear to Abram once he arrived in Shechem. And that's when Yahweh said to your offspring, I will give this land. When Abraham had the conundrum of not knowing where to go, go Yahweh Yireh showed him. When Abraham faced the self-made conundrum of his wife being taken into the king of Egypt's harem, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 17 informs us that Yahweh intervened on his behalf by afflicting Pharaoh in his house with great plagues until, she, until Pharaoh returned Sarai to Abram. Yahweh Yireh resolved the conundrum that Abram created for himself. When Abram faced the conundrum of separating from Lot, and Lot chose to take the well-watered land in the Jordan Valley, Yahweh appeared to Abram and told him not to fret over losing the choicest land because Yahweh was giving everything visible to him in every direction. Yahweh Yireh 
solved the dilemma. And when Abram faced the conundrum of Hagar running away after being impregnated by him and harshly treated by his wife, Yahweh is the one who found her by the spring and instructed her to return home. Yahweh, Yireh, once again, resolves the problem. And so here is Abraham. Understanding that every time there was a need in his life, Yahweh resolved it. So Abraham may not have known how or when Yahweh, Yireh, would provide a solution to this whole sacrificing Isaac problem, but he knew that Yahweh, Yireh, would eventually provide a solution. That's why when Isaac asked him in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 7, where is the lamb for a burnt offering, he responded by saying, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Isaac, you don't have to worry about it. God will resolve this as well. And I don't think this was just Abraham avoiding the truth or announcing an unintentional prophecy. I think Abraham was communicating his belief based on his experience with Yahweh Yireh. And sure enough, once Abraham passed the test, he found a ram caught in a thicket, which was divinely provided as a substitute for Isaac. And here's the thing. How did he not see a ram struggling in a, a, a bush when he got to the top of the mountain to begin with? Because Yahweh Yireh, provided the lamb and the God we worship our father who is in heaven is still Yahweh Yireh in Matthew chapter 6 after Jesus pointed out how our heavenly father provides food for the birds of the air and figurative clothing for the lilies of the field he then instructed his disciples to not be anxious about what they will eat or drink, or wear, because the Heavenly Father knows that you need them all, and as verse 33 says, will provide all these things if you will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Abraham sought Yahweh first, and Yahweh Yireh provided all he needed, resolved his dilemma, he is Yahweh Yireh, the God who sees your need before it exists and provides a solution for it. In fact, he's already provided for your greatest need. He's already foreseen your greatest need and resolved your greatest need. Because God knew from beginning, before he ever created anything, that your sins would exist and need to be paid for. And so Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that his plan of choosing us, his plan of offering salvation to us, his plan was in place before time began. And just like Abraham, he sent his only son to die. But when his son was being sacrificed, 
there was no intervention. There was no substitute. Because his son was the lamb caught in the thicket. And his son died, so you don't have to. Yahweh Yirre foresaw your need for salvation and resolved your need for salvation before you ever existed. He is the God who provides. And since he is Yahweh Yirre, how should that affect us? Well, number one, Yahweh Yirre demands our obedience. What's interesting to me in this narrative of Abraham and Isaac is that despite the gravity of what God asked Abraham to do, Abraham did not hesitate to do it. If you look at verse 3 of Genesis chapter 22, after receiving the orders, after being told, here's what I want you to do, I want you to go sacrifice your child, what happens? Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. If I were in Abraham's shoes, I probably would have found a way to delay obedience. You see, if Abraham delayed, it would at the very least give him more time with Isaac. It might also give him an opportunity to plead with God for another option. This was the guy, if you remember, who managed to negotiate God down to spare Sodom for only ten righteous souls. Why not spend some time with that negotiating tactic again? But more importantly, if he delayed, it might give God more time to change his mind. But Abraham didn't delay. Abraham got up early the next morning to fulfill exactly what God had told him to do. He did not hesitate. He did not procrastinate. He understood something that often eludes us, that obedience and procrastination are mutually exclusive. If you go over to Luke's gospel to the ninth chapter, in verse 59 and 60, we read about a man who was invited by Jesus to be a disciple. But when Jesus said, follow me, this individual requested time to first go and bury his father. Now that seems like a reasonable request. And Jesus' response seems insensitive because Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. But you need to pay attention to what the text does not say. The text does not indicate that the father had passed away. In fact, the phrase used by this man was a common Near Eastern figure of speech that's still used today that refers to a son's responsibility to help his father in the family business until the father died and the inheritance was distributed. So this individual's request was really a way of him saying, I'll follow you after I fulfilled my other obligations. It's his way of indirectly indicating that his obedience would have to wait. And Jesus' response served as a way of saying that obedience to God's will should never be delayed. Don't put off obeying God. Because you don't know when Yahweh Yireh's 
final provision will come. You don't know when Yahweh Yireh is sending his son back to get us and take us home. So don't delay obedience. Abraham didn't. Abraham rose early the next morning to obey Yahweh Yireh. Because he understood the importance of obedience. And Yahweh Yireh not only demands our obedience, but he desires our confidence. See, something else that stands out to me in this story is that Abraham said something so striking to his servants when they arrived at the prescribed mountain. It's in verse 5 of Genesis 22. He says to his servants, stay here with the donkeys. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now that might be easy for you to miss the significance there. But implicit in Abraham's words are the expectation that he and Isaac will, will both return after they go to worship. I and the boy will go over there and I and the boy will return is really what Abraham is saying. Now, I, I don't think Abraham is intentionally deceiving his servants, nor do I think he is simply saying what they're expecting to hear. Once again, I think he's speaking from the depths of his faith. I think he really believed that both he and Isaac would return, and I think that because of what the author of Hebrews said about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Do you understand what the author of Hebrews is saying? The author of Hebrews is saying that Abraham assumed that if nothing else, God could somehow bring Isaac back to life if he killed him. Abraham believed God could resurrect a life even though that had never happened in history up to that point in time. We read about resurrections throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, so it, it doesn't surprise us to think about resurrection. Abraham had never heard of such a thing. No one had ever come back from the dead by the time Abraham entered the world. But Abraham believed that Yahweh Yireh could do it. And maybe Abraham had tangible proof walking next to him. Maybe he had tangible proof that God could bring something back from the dead because his very own son Isaac was brought to life from two bodies that were reproductively dead. Maybe that's where he got his confidence from. God desires for us to have that same level of confidence in him. 
that confidence that knows who he is and what he's done in the past can still happen today. That he is Yahweh Yireh, the one who always keeps his word, the one who will provide, and the one who will resolve. Yahweh Yireh demands our obedience, desires our confidence, and deserves our sacrifice. Consider for a moment what Isaac meant to Abraham. Isaac is his only legitimate biological son at this point. A few chapters earlier, God instructed him to dismiss Ishmael. So Isaac is it. And Isaac is the son that Abraham waited 25 plus years to have. He's the only child of Abraham's beloved wife, Sarah. And he is the child through whom God said the covenant would continue. Now, we've got no problem when God wants us to give up something we know is bad for us. Nor do we have a problem when God wants us to give up something that is insignificant to us. When God asks us to sacrifice something we know is bad or something we know is worthless, we don't question it. It's when God calls on us to sacrifice something important, something valuable, something adored, that we tend to hesitate. Look at what Abraham told his servants in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 5 again. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. That's the first time the word worship appears in the Old Testament. And interestingly, the first time the word worship appears in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2, when some wise men from the east showed up with some gifts and said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The first time worship appears in the Old Testament is in conjunction with Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And the first time the word worship appears in the New Testament is in conjunction with the wise men bringing gifts to Jesus. In both cases, you have individuals making a multi-day journey, a sacrifice of sorts. Worship associated with sacrifice. What do we associate worship with right now? We associate worship with sitting in red pews on red carpet, singing praises to God at a set time, three times a week at most. What did Abraham associate worship with? Abraham associated worship with giving up the thing he loved the most in life. Abraham associated worship with sacrificing the most important, the most valuable thing in his life. We all have an Isaac. We all have that thing we want more than life itself, that thing that, that, that thing you, you least want to release, that thing you're holding on to the tightest, as one author said. We have that thing we protect with all our might. We have that thing 
that our life revolves around. It may be your career, it may be your family, it may be your health, your finances, it may be your search for a mate, your desire to have a child, it may be your reputation, it may be your independence, it may be your comfort, it may be a great many things because Isaacs come in all shapes and sizes, but there's one thing that all Isaacs have in common. They all have to be put on the altar. And if you refuse to give up your Isaac, then you're no different than the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was a guy who approached Jesus in Mark chapter 10, wanting to know what one thing he needed to do in order to be saved. And upon hearing Jesus initially say that all he had to do was keep the commandments, this rich young ruler quickly claimed to have successfully obeyed all of Mosaic law. And despite that level of obedience which we've already noted, Yahweh, Yireh demands. Despite that level of obedience, this guy still felt inadequate. And he was. He was inadequate because Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 and verse 21, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. For this guy, his Isaac was his wealth. His wealth was the one thing he wouldn't let go of. And because of he was unwilling to sacrifice his wealth, he went away sorrowful and missed the opportunity to discover Yahweh Yireh. You see, we will never know Yahweh Yireh until we are willing to put our Isaac on the altar. That was the only way Abraham could learn that name, and it's the only way we will as well. Because if we'll put our Isaac on the altar, Yahweh Yireh will put the ram in the bush. So what's your Isaac right now? What's the thing you need to give up that you're allowing to stand between you and Yahweh Yireh? Because know this about him. If you'll give it up, he'll bless you in ways you can't even imagine. So this morning, the invitation stands. If you have an Isaac to give up today, won't you do it while together we stand and sing?